0: Why do we do that? A psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Nick Tiller about how the health and fitness industry shapes our beliefs about health. Nick is a senior researcher in the Institute of Exercise Physiology and Respiratory Medicine, at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. He's published numerous articles on cardiopulmonary function, respiratory mechanics, and exercise limitation, and is an associate editor of the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. Nick also writes frequently on the global health and wellness industry, scrutinizing it through the lens of scientific skepticism. His contributions can be seen in numerous mainstream outlets and a monthly column for Skeptical Inquirer. In 2020, he released his first book entitled The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science, Confronting Myths of the Health and Fitness Industry, which was the focus of our conversation. Speaking with Nick really exposed how marketers have shaped our beliefs about health and wellness over the last 50 years and how we often uncritically accept ideas presented to us as fact, when in reality, there are often more sinister motives at play. I find the amount of misinformation and disinformation in this industry particularly troubling because we are so prone to parroting it to others. We read short articles or watch clips on YouTube or TikTok that make claims about nutrition, supplements, or exercise. And then we spread that information to our peers without ever giving a thought to whether or not the claims are supported by any quality scientific research. Not to mention that we are more likely to absorb the idea if it fits our current set of beliefs. Another takeaway I had from our discussion was the ubiquity of fuzzy language in the health industry. Products and services that use terms like natural, detoxifying, or supports immune health have an immediate emotional impact on us. But in most cases, these are just marketing terms that don't actually tell us much about the product or whether or not there is any evidence to support its effectiveness. After all, it isn't illegal to boast false claims about your product provided that your claims are vague enough to satisfy the Food and Drug Administration. When you combine these forces with our own errors in reasoning, overconfidence, and our limited ability to accurately assess what activities causally impact our body and mind, you realize how important it is to be skeptical of even our deepest beliefs about health. I hope that after listening to this discussion, you can reevaluate some of your beliefs in a new light. Enjoy. Okay, joining me today is Nick Tiller. Thank you so much for being on today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, so, your uh, new book is called uh, The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science uh, Confronting Myths of the Health and Fitness Industry. Uh, It was very interesting uh, to go through the uh, sort of, I would describe it as sort of the first half sort of establishes uh, why there is so much uh, misinformation in the health and fitness industry. And then sort of the second half sort of takes deep dives into very specific topics uh, of note. Um, Overall, it's sort of your goal seems to be pointing out a lot of bad ideas and patterns of thinking that sort of pop up in this, in this area of conversation. Um, Why is it that misinformation is so prevalent in the health and fitness industry? I mean, if you were to, I, it's so prevalent to me, it feels like if I were to ask a random person, you know, give me five facts about health and wellness, two of them would be false. Like it's, it's startling to see how how difficult difficult it is to navigate what's true and false in in terms of health and fitness. So what why is this uh, so common, do you think? Well,
1: misinformation
0: and disinformation, and
1: obviously the difference between the two is misinformation is is spread inadvertently by people who maybe don't know a particular topic too well and they're sharing something that they haven't necessarily verified. Disinformation is spread deliberately by people who are wanting to misinform deliberately. And th- these two things are pervasive in modern culture in, very, very broadly. They are p- perhaps more prevalent in health and wellness because the health and, health and wellness industry is, is inherently very, as an industry, it's inherently commercial. And it's it's really, it's a, it's a huge industry the last count, the industry was worth over $4 trillion worldwide. And health and wellness encompasses everything from health club memberships to dietary supplements, complementary and alternative medicines, all the gadgets and pills, powders and potions that you can think of are all under this umbrella term of health and wellness. So this valuation of $4 trillion doesn't really come as any surprise. But because of that, uh, the the claims surrounding these products are going to be increasingly uh, wider reaching. We also have a problem with regulation in the industry. We have to think that there is a very clear distinction between how new drugs are marketed and and how new drugs become available and how new health and wellness products become available. So when when somebody introduces a new drug to the market, there has to be a minimum threshold of evidence that is surpassed. Before the thing can actually um, become available, so there are preclinical. There's a discovery. There's, there are preclinical trials. Then clinical trials involve increasing number of human subjects, from a couple of dozen at phase one to potentially tens of thousands or more at phase three. Mm-hmm. And then all of the data are then reviewed by a panel. In the US, it's you know typically the FDA. And so, as I said, there is a minimum threshold of evidence that has to be surpassed. None of this exists in health and wellness. Manufacturers can say and do whatever they like, they're not really held accountable for their claims. And certainly the marketing takes priority over the science. So, when well, and, then, you, and then
0: you also have the, the FDA muddies the water by having these designations, uh, you know, there's FDA. Uh, approved versus, you know, some other, you know, one of, one of, I, I forget the exact terminology, maybe, you know, uh, one just means it's not going to hurt or harm you. And the other, it means that it's gone through rigorous clinical trials. It, they couldn't mean any, like, they're completely different designations, but uh, it, it lends credence to something that does nothing but isn't harmful, right? Right. Yeah. And and that's
1: that's a really important point is because, again, to use the 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 drugs analogy in medicine, that there has to be really good evidence of safety and efficacy before the drug can become available. When we talk about, for example, dietary supplements, there only has to be overt evidence of harm before the thing will be taken off the market. So by default, as long as it doesn't contain any brand new ingredients, somebody can make a dietary supplement, sell it, make whatever claims they like it will only be taken off the market when there is overt evidence of harm now that's a very backwards industry right it shouldn't it should be the other way around, of course so when you think about the vast commercial value of the industry that the fact that we have relatively blunted critical faculties because we haven't evolved to be able to make decisions in this vastly commercialist culture you throw pervasive social media into the mix which as as we mentioned at the start is uh, really where myths and disinformation are spread,
0: this is why we have such a problem, particularly in health and wellness. So uh, the one of the frameworks that you kind of establish in the book is this idea of of there are bad ideas. And some of these ideas are, you know, they're, they're, wildly common and reflect sort of a default way that humans process information and pursue goals and and things like that uh let's let's start by talking about um one of these ideas that you mentioned and talk about quite a bit this quick fix mindset this idea that you know humans are kind of biased towards um finding the quickest and easiest solution to a problem and often ignore some of the the solutions that require more effort. Uh, my question to you is, you would think by now, given given that we've learned so much about human psychology, we you know this idea that hard work is important and the the things that are most rewarding require work, but we're still we still kind of lean towards that quick fix mindset. So could you talk a little bit about how how that kind of manifests itself?
1: Well, we're still very reluctant to accept that that to achieve anything of any value in this world, it re- it requires time and effort and patience. We'd rather as, as you said, we are we have this hard wiring for the shortcut for the quick fix. It's so prevalent that I refer to it as the quick fix fallacy. I wrote about it in one of my columns. But to, to take it right back to the start, you know, human when you think about the fact that humans evolved logic and reason mm-hmm. for navigating hypersocial groups because we are social animals and for also being able to for pattern recognition to be able to recognize patterns in the environment now tens of thousands of years ago when we were hunter-gatherers these things served very important survival advantages being able to for example predict the patterns of migrating animals or to be able to predict weather patterns and also economy being economic as hunter-gatherers was incredibly important for survival not not just being able to Conserve energy whenever whenever we were able to, but also to uh, when we were gathering uh, food and foraging for food, being able to do that in an economical way, uh, expending as little energy as possible, served a very real survival um, survival advantage. So these sort of economic heuristics, if you like, these decision making shortcuts, were very much uh, in, sort of embedded within our DNA. Now, the important thing is that human genes haven't really changed dramatically in the last 10,000 years. You know, on on an evolutionary scale, that's that's a very short period of time, but modern society has changed dramatically in the last couple of hundred years, especially in the last 50 years since the advent of the internet, social media. And, And I refer to it as this idea that we're using analog critical faculties to navigate a digital age. We have not evolved the critical thinking skills or abilities to be able to to deal with social media, bad science, this this commercialist culture, and and if you if you take nothing else away from this talk, take this away. It's this idea that manufacturers of these products in health and wellness they understand all of this and they know our biases better than we do. Right. So they they employ behavioral psychologists. They do big studies looking on how people make decisions. They know about how we make decisions and they manipulate those decisions in order to sell product. So to be a good critical thinker, and this is something that I really sort of trying to get across in the book is that we have to understand our biases. We have to understand the way that we make decisions, not just in health and wellness, but in all facets of society because marketing companies understand this better than we do. So uh, we, we've got to put the work in, put the time in to uh, to, to understand these things a little bit better.
0: Yeah, so let's uh, let's dive in and sort of uh, discuss a few of the uh, logical fallacies that are are very common when it comes to consuming information related to health, fitness, and nutrition. Uh, obviously, one of the big ones is sort of um, this. Reliance on the term natural, right? Um, it it is, you know, if you go to the grocery store now, um, just about every single food section has the standard variety of products, and then it has the uh natural. You know, version the organic version. It's adjacent to, and it doesn't even matter what the product is. Even candy, right? There's the natu- all natural licorice mm-hmm. or something that you can buy. Um, could you talk about about how uh, how these companies use the term natural and 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 what it really means versus what they they want you to think it means?
1: Yeah, this is what we call, it's an informal logical fallacy, which I'm sure you know all about. It's called the appeal to nature. And it's this idea that something is better or inherently good because it is natural or naturally derived or that it is better than something that is unnatural or synthetic. And this is an ingrained bias that we have. And again, companies and marketing companies understand this bias that we have this natural this ingrained proclivity for natural products. And it's everywhere, it's probably the most common fallacy that we see, not just in health and wellness, but in cosmetics, in, in uh, produce on, on the broadest scale. And there's no reason why this should inherently be the case. The, the, the way that I used to describe it to my students when I was teaching these classes of critical thinking was to think about a glucose molecule. And I talk about glucose in the context of you know dietary supplements or sports supplements, sports drinks, and if you were to look at uh, a glucose molecule under a high-powered microscope, you see the chemical structure C6H12O6, so that it has six carbons, 12 hydrogens, six oxygen atoms, and they're all bound together in this particular structure. And if you have this molecule, let's say this one is naturally derived, so it was extracted from nature. And then you got another glucose molecule that was synthesized in a lab, so that it was quote-unquote unnatural synthetic but if you look at it under the same microscope it's going to have the exact same chemical structure it's the exact same compound and if you were to ingest either one of them it's going to have an identical effect on the body it's going to spike your blood glucose concentrations maybe a negligible amount and you're going to get an insulin response and so forth so but if you actually do a poll with 100 people say who would rather consume the natural derived glucose and who would rather consume the synthetic one almost everyone would say without thinking well of course i'd rather put natural things into my body but at this fundamental level there's no reason why that should be the case that's why it's a fallacy because it's it's the exact same thing so to give you some some concrete examples of where we see this even you know before we get into health and wellness i think the example i gave in the start of the book is when you go into a supermarket and if it's a big enough supermarket you'll often see uh, a lot of the produce is is not sold Uh, some of it is sold in plastic packaging some of it now is is sold loose it's sold you know often surrounded by earth often it's packaged in these brown paper bags because it Mm -hmm. sort of gives out this sort of this earthy sort of vibe which makes you think think that it's much more natural Uh, we see organic food that is marketed at least partly on this premise that because something is more natural that it must Somehow, be better for you. But if we look at the studies, organic produce is no more healthful than non-organic produce. If uh, you go into, again, most large supermarket chains, they'll have deli counters where you can buy your fish and your meat. And all of this stuff is loose and it's packed in ice. And more often than not, it's the exact same produce as what you'd find packaged up in the shelves. But the fact that it's loose because it's packed in ice, because there's somebody there wearing a butcher's outfit, uh, that's that's making you think that it's that it's a much more natural, earthy way of doing things. It, that that sort of uh, that subconscious messaging is impossible for us to ignore. Even yeah. to the to the point where if you were to buy a steak, often the 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 steak is packaged in black packaging because it contrasts more sharply with the redness of the meat. Hmm. So it gives you again, it makes the meat look a little bit more natural. It makes the meat look richer. And this is all part of the, the appeal to nature fallacy. It's getting us to uh, to make decisions based on this idea that natural things are better for us.
0: Yeah, so so yeah. this this fallacy is absolutely everywhere and it's being exploited all the time. Uh, another, another fallacy that you mentioned uh, relates to popularity. Um, so you see uh, even sort of very f- sort of fringe Uh, pseudoscience related to uh, athletic performance, Uh, it can penetrate even the most elite uh, sports organizations. Uh, I think you recently, I was just reading an an article about uh, how it's entering the UFC. Uh, You just uh, released that article uh, yesterday. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, what you think is driving that because when, when I look at you know the NFL and the Olympics and they have you know these this kinesthetic tape that, that they put on their shoulders and it helps them perform, you know better, or allegedly helps them perform better, it reminds me of the research on superstition in the sense that you tend to see superstition in sports, when you know partially because of the high stakes and high level of uncertainty right you don't see so if if you were to take baseball for example um you don't see superstitions for fielding because fielding is a high probability event in baseball you don't have a lot of drop fly balls or ground balls but you do see it in in when they're when they're batting because that is a low probability event. you know, the greatest baseball player of all time left the plate you know seven out of ten times. He didn't do anything. Um I'm curious if you think that the ability of pseudoscience to penetrate these high level organizations, do you think that the the high stakes and uncertainty has to has to do with it, or is it or is it a little bit more complicated than that?
1: I think that's that's definitely a huge contributing factor. I would add that the other thing to consider in, in high-level sport is that the margins between success and failure are are decreasing all the time. If you think about the difference between gold and silver in a in a running race, for example, could be you know a second. In, in a sprint event, it's going to be a fraction of a second. So there's this ethos in high-performance sport. I used I used to work on the Olympic programs in the United Kingdom. And there is this ethos called marginal gains which was made popular by the british cycling team who over the years have been incredibly popular uh particularly in track cycling they won so many gold more gold medals than i can count and that they came up with this idea of marginal gains which is every one percent every 0.1 percent if you chase down all of these marginal gains they will eventually accumulate to make some kind of meaningful difference so in elite sport, athletes and coaches are always chasing something that can give them even the slightest, most negligible advantage because they all add up. So I think athletes and coaches are much more likely to be more experimental in their pursuit of sports performance. And I don't think they really mind if something works only in the context of placebo. And when we talk about placebo, it's, it's an expectation. It's a belief effect. It's not a real physical effect on the body of the product but it's a very powerful psychobiological effect of the belief and the expectation and if something only works in the context of placebo I think they're more than happy with that and if you look at large surveys done with athletes and coaches they're more than happy to use placebos athletes don't even mind being lied to being deceived by their coach as long as it improves performance so all of these things sort of coalesce to make alternative type therapies perhaps a little bit more common in sport
0: yeah and it, it's what's particularly troubling is you know you can make that argument for elite athletes and say you know well the coaches you know they're they're, they're putting the the tape on the shoulders the kinesiology tape and uh the, the bracelets and et cetera, et cetera, and because they've already Gone through the 99% of correct evidence based things that they need in order to perform at their best. So they'll just put this cherry on top as sort of a psychological placebo, just a psychological edge, whatever you want to call it. But then when you take that and you expose it to the general public, now it becomes a major problem because now people are saying, you know, who have they're basically skipping all of the proper, that 99% of activities that they should be doing to get better and sort of skipping the line by buying the tape, by buying the, you know, doing the cupping procedures and stuff like that. Uh, It's, it's, it's much worse when you observe it in the elite and then you just try to apply it in your own life.
1: Yeah. That's something that I would, that I would really like people that, you know, who are engaging in more mainstream or recreational sport and, and, health and exercise fitness to acknowledge is that most of the stuff that gets propagated, the stuff that you hear about in the news and see it and read in the magazines. It, it's not the, the stuff that the athletes are doing on a day-to-day basis where they're training for five hours a day and they're getting, they're thinking about their sleep and they're working with nutritionists to make sure that they're meeting their protein requirements and getting their energy requirements, right. Needing their fruit and veg and hydrating and doing everything that they possibly can, you know, getting them 99% of the way, and that, exactly as you said, then the extra maybe one, two, three percent, whatever it is that they that they're trying to achieve by okay, wearing wearing tape or trying a supplement, or, you know, this is all icing on the cake or the, it's it's the cherry on top of the cake, whereas that's the stuff that actually gets marketed to the mainstream. This is the stuff. That gets pictured in the in the magazines, or you see it on TV when the athletes are performing. When somebody's at the Olympic Games and they're running around the track at phenomenal speed, you you don't see the hours of hard work and dedication and time and nutrition and sleep and psychology. You see mm-hmm. the brightly coloured tape that's on yeah. their shoulder or on their lower back. So you think, ah, well, if it's working for them. Or you see the cupping bruises on their shoulder, and you know on mm-hmm. the shoulders of Michael Phelps. I can guarantee it wasn't the cupping that that helped him to win more gold medals than any other Olympic athlete in history. It was, okay, very good genetics, but everything else he did around that to reach his full potential. But uh, yeah, it's the the glitzy, glamorous stuff that seems to get the most attention.
0: Now, uh, another theme uh, in your book is that humans aren't particularly great at perceiving how substances impact us. So you spend a lot of time talking about the placebo effect. Um, my question is uh, sort of how do you how do you approach this idea with an individual because oftentimes the, you know there's there are a few things more difficult than, Talking someone out of a substance or something that they do that they feel benefits them. So, you know, how do you approach that? What what types? You know, how do you have a conversation about that with someone? Well, very
1: carefully to begin with, because uh, it's important to understand that corrective messages work. We we call it debunking, but I don't really like that as a general term. I think it's a little bit derivative. But, but corrective messaging is really effective, but it's got to be done in the right way. So typically what you see on social media when when uh, you know, people engage in these arguments is just they they get very uh, aggressive uh, or passive aggressive. They just tell the other party that they're wrong, that they're stupid, that they're ignorant, and that all that's going to do is cause them to double down. You push people away. Nobody likes to learn that they're wrong, that they've wasted their time. So we need to be sympathetic and empathetic if possible we need to be patient and we and affable so these are all really important traits we need to present the evidence because you're not going to change anybody's mind by smiling sweetly and telling them that they're wrong you need to present some evidence for your contrary view and and be patient the, the other thing that we need to try and do a little bit more of is something called cognitive debiasing which is when you at its core, it's about getting people to rather than trying to change somebody's mind, it's about getting them to change their own mind. Tip, particularly if something is a very staunchly held belief, you're not going to convince them to change a you know a political ideology, or certainly not a religious ideology, or any any staunchly held belief that that is close to becoming ideology. You you need to get them. You need to plant the seeds of doubt. This is the key word that that we talk about in science. Uh, one of the science's greatest strengths is that we always try to doubt our assertions and we're try, always trying to disprove our hypotheses right, rather than trying to prove them. So when you talk to somebody and you go through this cognitive debiasing process, you can ask questions like, okay, I understand that you're into chiropractic or whatever it happens to be, something that, that perhaps isn't evidence-based. What would change your mind? What kind of evidence would you have to see to change your mind about this? Would any evidence change your mind? Would, um, if you had a a bad experience with chiropractic, if your chiropractor talked to you about some of the evidence or lack thereof, would would that change your mind, you know? Um, Have you ever had any negative experiences with it? Do you know any? And you can just ask all these questions and you, you can just get them to start thinking about these things. Now, oftentimes they'll come back to you and they'll say nothing, no amount of evidence will ever get me to change my mind about this thing and you're wasting your time in which case going through that process gives you an idea as to whether their ideas are fixed or finite right. and if those ideas are fixed and they're never going to change their mind then d- don't waste your time but but rather than just confronting them about it just have an open conversation and just get them to question some of their own
0: beliefs in in this uh, in this practice so I, I want to talk about uh, a little bit about alternative medicine and a little bit about nutrition. Uh, let's start with alternative medicine. So um you know, again, going back to bad ideas, we've created this uh, this fracture of there's there's Western medicine and doctors that uh, you have to be in the waiting room for an hour and then they see you for five minutes and then they prescribe a drug. And that's, uh, for many people, that's the bad type of uh, of a medical approach. And then those same individuals will say, on the other hand, you have alternative medicine. And this is what I, I ascribe to. Um, for someone that is maybe curious about some alt med type practices, your acupuncture, your homeopathy. What What do we need to know about the idea of alternative medicine?
1: Well, we can talk about alternative medicine in in uh, in in a similar context as we talk about uh, pseudoscience, and that's not to use a pejorative term deliberately, but it, it's, you know, when, when we talk about pseudoscience, it's something that seems to follow all of the processes and ethos of science and the scientific method, but actually doesn't conform to the same kind of rigor and alternative medicine typically uh, to, to quote Tim Minchin is, uh, you know, what do we call um, alternative medicine that's been proven to work medicine. So alternative medicine and complementary alternative medicine, more broadly, by definition, have not been proven, according to modern science, to be effective for treating any kind of clinical disorder. Now, for some people, that, that is particularly why they use it, because it subverts modern science. For, for whatever reason, they don't have trust in scientists or modern medicine, so that's why they go the alternative route. Yeah,
0: that's but, what, that's what I... That's where my interest sort of peaks uh hmm. is that there seems to be motivation there's there's always some sort of motivation that pushes someone to this category of health ideas and and oftentimes it's it, it, it's it's very nuanced. It's you know someone had a bad experience with quote unquote traditional medicine and so, then they they move into alt med and they get uh they get a practitioner who's very caring uh, on average is going to be a little bit softer to deal with you know
1: all right well and and this is uh a lot for a lot of people it's deliberately subversive because as you say they don't trust modern medicine or modern science so they go the alternative route and there's a lot there is something to be said for if you go and see a homeopathic doctor, for example. Now I can't speak to the statistics in the in the US. I, I lived living in the US for about four years, but prior to that I lived in the UK. And the before the NHS went down the toilet, the the uh the average amount of time that you got with a with your local doctor, with your local physician, was eight minutes. That was the average amount of time that you would get to see your physician for. If you go and see a homeopathic doctor, it's sort of double, triple that. You can go and sit, sit there 20 minutes. They're not just trying to turn you around as quickly as possible because the demand for homeopathy is obviously not as great as traditional medicine or, or as modern medicine, I should say. So you can sit there for 15, 20 minutes with your homeopathic doctor and they'll ask you how you are and then how you're feeling and uh, did this treatment work for you? And And there's that very caring uh, approach. And there's a lot to be said for that. Because that is inherent with it with the placebo effect, but what people need to understand is that the, these things have again have not been proven to work. So if you have a real this going to see a homeopathic doctor or an alternative medicine practitioner, that's great if you have a little bit of back pain that more often than not seems to resolve on its own, or you have some kind of benign headache or a bit of muscle ache, you know. Uh, That that's all well and good, but if you have a real medical ailment, something that is particularly serious or that could be serious, you need modern medicine. And I sort of have this this uh, this idea that 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 necessity breeds or or urgency breeds reality. When 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 the shit hits the fan,
0: yeah,
1: people seem to get very real very quickly. If you somehow break your leg, you have some kind of traumatic injury, and you break your leg. Nobody's screaming out for a homeopathic doctor. They they want an orthopedic surgeon and they want modern medicine very, very quickly. If somebody needs a surgery on their shoulder, they, they, they don't go and see their, their local naturopath. They go and see somebody who's trained in modern medicine. So the urgency breeds necessity. The other thing I'd like to very quickly touch upon is that even though a lot of people who use alternative medicines or alternative approaches, do so deliberately to subvert the modern medical system. I think there are an even greater number of people who are using alternative practices without even realizing it. So acupuncture, for example, is considered a, 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 a well, it's an ancient Chinese medicine, very much alternative therapy, but the, the vast majority of physiotherapists who are trained in you know, scientific, uh, you know, they haven't, they have science educations, they practice acupuncture and it's managed to snake its way into mainstream practice. And and it's so prevalent now that people will go and get acupuncture from their local physiotherapist. They don't even know that they're having an alternative therapy. And so a lot of people are using these things without even realizing.
0: It's interesting that, because I I meet people all the time that, um, that participate in, 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 in these types of, of practices, uh, in particular, uh, you know, acupuncture uh, chiropractic is one of the big ones. Um, it's, you know, I noticed that there's very little skepticism or thought put into it in the sense that take, for example, a, a, a session with a, with a chiropractor. Um, of course they're the evidence on chiropractic is more or less, um, there, there's probably some sort of vague muscular skeletal benefits from, you know, seeing a, a, a chiropractor because part of it is massage and massage makes people feel good. It causes muscles to relax, et cetera, et cetera. But I noticed that there's there's not a lot of skepticism that goes into these practices and it kind of allows it allows it to perpetuate because, you know, what do I need to be skeptical about? If I go and I get a little massage and I get my neck cracked and et cetera, et cetera, and I kind of feel good when I leave and it becomes a ritual and I go every week. um is And it kind of falls into this umbrella discussion of, well, what's the harm? uh Do you think that That uh, you know, is there a harm? What would what would you say to somebody who who basically lays that case out for you and says, you know, I it's you know, what is the harm of me going to this uh, practitioner every week?
1: Well, there are probably two things to unpack there. The the first one is that, as as I mentioned, with regards to acupuncture, that people use it without realizing that they're using an alternative practice. It's very similar with chiropractic. Somebody will have a, some kind of muscular injury or a lower back problem or neck problem. They will often go and see a chiropractor because as far as they're aware, as far as they're concerned, it is almost just a synonym for a medical practitioner. I mean, you can get doctors of chiropractic, chiropractic schools that, that administer their own PhDs. You know, you can get a PhD in chiropractic by going to a, a chiropractic university. And uh, so a lot of the time, people just think they're going to see a medical professional and they're not and this is the problem when we uncritically accept all practices into mainstream culture because the the non-evidence based practices get in they become intermingled with the evidence-based stuff and so you can't even tell them apart and and so this is i get this is pseudoscience at its most unscrupulous and most subversive is when it sneaks into mainstream practice it's like trojan horse and nobody even knows that that uh, that they're using something alternative with regards to your second point what's the harm so this is an important one because again a lot of people don't consider the downstream implications of the alternative therapies that they're using so firstly alternative therapies complementary or can complementary alternative medicines they can be overtly harmful So there are lots of instances where chiropractic, for example, deals with subluxations of the spine, so it's spinal manipulation. And there are many cases of people getting broken bones, broken necks from from chiropractic manipulations. Uh, With acupuncture, for example, there are many cases, documented cases in the scientific literature of pneumothorax, so uh, punctured lung, because uh, acupuncture needles have been incorrectly placed and placed too deep. With cupping, which we mentioned earlier, there's a risk of cupping related burns and infection and, and so forth. And of course, all medical treatments have risks, but physicians will make a risk to benefit assessment. But when with alternative medicine, the benefit hinges on placebo only And so the risks become much harder to justify, Mm -hmm. right? With a real medical treatment, a physician is trained to make a risk to benefit assessment. And sometimes they will say, okay, well, this comes with risks, but it's probably, you know, it's going to confer a net benefit for you. But going to see a chiropractor, according to modern scientific evidence, it doesn't seem to work for almost anything. So the the benefits hinge on placebo. So so that's the overt harm with, with alternative therapies. The other thing to mention is, which I touched upon briefly, is the downstream implications. In that, if we broadly condone the use of alternative medicines on the basis of, well, what's the harm if it makes people feel a bit better, even if you discount the direct harm that can be caused, if somebody really believes in the healing properties of cupping or acupuncture or chiropractic or Reiki or any, any of these other practices, It's only going to be a matter of time before they use some of these practices to treat a real medical ailment. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to tragic consequences. There are hundreds and hundreds of very sad, very tragic cases reported in the mainstream media, in the scientific literature of people losing their lives because they they try to treat something, a real medical problem with something that only works in the context of placebo. Mm -hmm. So that's when real harm can, when people ask me, what's the harm? Um, I, I always tell them that. You've got to think about the downstream implications.
0: Yeah, the uh, my favorite anecdote, particularly uh, particularly with homeopathy, is uh, uh, oftentimes you'll see homeopathic medicine in shelves in large depart. You'll see them at, at big department stores and drug stores. Uh, but there's one, out of all the ailments that uh, homeopathic medicine treats, you will never see homeopathic birth control. Right, because because that is the that is the one uh, condition that will have extremely high stakes if it doesn't work. Right. Right, um, and and it's a, and it's immediately obvious if it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. You
1: can see yeah. people using homeopathic birth control, and 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 there'll be very clear statistics showing that it doesn't work. Right. Uh, and and I know that the Center for Inquiry, who published the Skeptical Inquirer that I write for, they um, are sort of Currently engaged in a legal battle with CVS pharmacies because of their broad, um, you know, advocacy of homeopathic products. They they don't seem to have any restriction on selling these products. And I think these kinds of cases are good examples of how we need to be a little bit more critical.
0: Yeah, it's all, and it's also not fair to the the you know to defend big pharma for a second. You know, things the over the counter medicine that has gone through double blind placebo controlled studies they actually do something to your body and so because they have measurable you know palpable you know obvious measurable impacts to your body sometimes those impacts are good sometimes they're bad sometimes they're uh you know they're they're just part of the process when you take uh, tylenol or something like that um but this this whole category of 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 medications and certain supplements that don't really do anything, you know. It's of of course they're they're not going to have any side effects because they don't actually have many of them have no effect at all,
1: right? But particularly with homeopathic products, I mean, you're literally taking uh, water. You know, if you take a homeopathic homeopathic preparation, the the active ingredient is so dilute that it's is basically not present at all. I don't know what's what's in homeopathic tablets uh, because you know that they've they've dehydrated. I mean, there's no water in it, so I don't exactly know why you look in the ingredients list. But but you're absolutely right. And if you look at a, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the the TED talk that James Randi delivered some year. I think it was back in 2007. He started the talk by 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 eating a whole uh, a whole container of homeopathic pills. Just, yeah, you know, this, is, this is an this is an activity
0: that uh, I, I used to do in my uh, statistics class. I did it once right. in my statistics class, but uh, yeah, go ahead.
1: And and it's a, just an overt demonstration that these things actually don't contain not just no active ingredients, but no in, ingredients really, really. It's just that these things may as, well, may as well just be sugar pills. Uh, whereas if you do that with any kind of you know, typically available drug, that, that's going to cause a lot of harm. And um, I, I just hasten to add that I'm not unfairly defending big pharma because the pharmaceutical industry and the availability of drugs, it's far from being a perfect system. And for complete transparency, I've never received a cent of funding from any kind of pharmaceutical company. So before people start emailing me and calling me a shill, Mm -hmm. um, that's simply not the case. It's simply that with the availability of drugs, as I said at the start, it's not perfect, but at least it is underpinned by some kind of structure where the sellers of these products have to have to show some kind of safety and efficacy before the thing can, can be made of it. There is a minimum threshold of evidence that has to be surpassed. It doesn't seem to be that way for any other product in the health and wellness industry.
0: So I want to wrap up talking about nutrition, uh, particularly from sort of the, uh, the general public view of nutrition. Um, nutrition is is somewhat unique from some of the more advanced alt med type and, and and pharmaceutical conversations because it feels to me like everyone everyone has an opinion about nutrition about how you know how much protein you need to eat and what a good diet looks like and on social media you know I get served up tons of nutrition videos, partially because I've started making some positive lifestyle changes and they're trying to wash me into the, into the uh, industry so I can spend some money. But um, you know, you, you see all kinds of different things. You see the, 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 the carnivore diet and you see, you know, weight loss remedies and stuff like that. But particularly with nutrition, what, um, uh, if you had to pick sort of one idea in nutrition that is like one of the most pervasive myths in nutrition, uh, what would you point to?
1: Well, you touched on a very important point there is, and I think the essence of the nutrition industry is that for something to sell, for people to, to buy into this, to, to a premise, it has to be packaged and sold as a product. People have a lot of difficulty getting their head around the fact that in order to get results in any meaningful health and wellness outcome, whether it's losing weight or gaining muscle or getting fit, running a marathon, reducing your blood pressure, improving your cardiovascular health, takes time and effort. You've got to do regular exercise, increase your physical activity levels and eat better. This is a time displacement and an effort displacement, two things that humans have not evolved to be able to implement very well. Whereas in, in health and wellness and particularly nutrition, seems to be that if somebody's going to start a new diet, it needs to be packaged as a diet, something that you can literally buy, and something that you can follow, because this com- confers some kind of advantage. Or it's a pill, or it's a supplement, it's, it's some kind of quick fix that people think, if I take that pill, if I take that supplement, if I uh, follow this diet, if I eat that fruit, if I do that exercise, then this is going to discount the effort display displacement, discount the time displacement, and it's gonna expedite my health and wellness goals. Uh, the other problem, of course, is that anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. So you don't have to have any qualifications whatsoever. You could have done a personal training qualification over two days. You could have done an online nutrition course. You could have done none of the above. You could have a degree and a PhD and done some professional qualifications. Anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. A dietitian is a much more protected term. You have to have a minimum set of qualifications. I believe you have to have at least uh, an undergraduate and a master's and have done the minimum number of clinical hours as well. Nutrition is not a protected term. So anybody online can call themselves a nutritionist. So I think
0: these are some of the reasons why it's so pervasive. Now, with I want to ask specifically about... Multivitamins and supplements, because it seems to me in the conversations I have with people, the default reason why people go down these paths, it's a, it's kind of, a, it's a little bit of, well, I read an article that said this nutrient is important, so I'm gonna take a, I'm gonna take this pill and 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 supplement that nutrient. Others, it might be, well, um, you know, kind of goes back to the, well, it can't hurt, you know, to take a multivitamin. How should we think about uh, things like daily supplements and multivitamins?
1: Broadly, the vast majority of people don't need any kind of daily supplement. There are a very small percentage of people who are malnourished for some reason. Uh, there are obvious examples if somebody has had, you know, has a malabsorption issue, or they've had bariatric surgery, or they're not able to get the nutrients they need. Then obviously, some of these people are going to be nutrient deficient. There will be a very small percentage of the population who are simply just not eating enough food or don't have a a remotely balanced diet. The number of people in the Western world who fall under in this category are going to be relatively small. But uh, some people, if they are specifically deficient in a nutrient, they may benefit from a supplement. Now, the, the, the caveat to that is it's very, very easy just to eat a little bit better and make sure you're not deficient that you don't need to engage in using a supplement the other thing is to know if you are deficient requires a blood test and then you need to see a physician and they'll tell you if you are deficient in a particular nutrient it's not just the case that if you're not getting vitamin in your diet enough vitamin a in your diet that doesn't mean that you are deficient in vitamin a you need to have a blood test to tell you if you are deficient okay um so so the so those are a few caveats the vast majority of people don't need supplements if uh, somebody is deficient and they're having symptoms because of this deficiency and then a physician suggests that they start taking a supplement very very rarely they might even suggest some kind of a nutrient infusion to correct you know if somebody's anemic for example but by and large people don't need supplements there's no evidence that supplements are beneficial for health and if taken in Large doses, they can actually be toxic, can be harmful to the body. And there are some analyses showing that there's a direct correlation between people who take supplements and increased risk of mortality. So in other words, the more supplements you take, the greater your risk of, of, of negative effects. And uh, this could be because the type of people who take supplements, uh, multivitamin supplements, tend to be people who don't look after themselves they don't do enough exercise, they don't eat very well, so they, they try and compensate by taking supplements, and the compensation never really works.
0: Well, uh, the name of the book is The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science, Confronting Myths of the Health and Fitness Industry. Uh, we talked a lot about very specific treatments and supplements uh, in passing throughout this conversation. If you get the book, uh, you can uh, you can see the work shown. You can see uh, Nick talk about the data for uh, each of these individual uh, treatments or drugs that we that we touched on. Uh, thank you so much for the enlightening conversation. I appreciate you coming on, Nick Tiller.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me.
0: nick visit nbtiller.com that's nbtiller.com and also check out his new book the skeptics guide to sports science confronting myths of the health and fitness industry wherever books are found if you enjoy this podcast please share an episode with two of your friends Follow the Why do we Do that Facebook page for updates and additional content, Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why do we Do that podcast or Twitter at wdwdtpod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at Why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that?